Well, good morning. We're glad you all are here uh, this morning. Thanks for making your way out and uh, braving the unexpected rain. It was not in the forecast when I decided to walk uh, to church this morning, uh, but glad that you uh, made it here. Um, a couple of you were asking last night if we are uh, recording these sessions, and indeed we are. So if you are here this morning and you missed last night, um, I encourage you to, I think you'll be able to pick up on things uh, as, as they go this morning. Uh, you know, I've been watching Loki with my daughter, and then I was gone out of town this week, and uh, she watched, you know, a couple episodes without me, and I had to jump in, you know, uh, partway by watching an episode with her last night, and I was totally lost. I don't think that's how it's going to be for you this morning. Um, Robert will, will catch you up a little bit, so it'll be better than my experience. But if you do want to go back and listen to that, a really crucial beginning to uh, the conference, I encourage you to do that. And then also you can be able to share this with your friends uh, after the fact as well. Other folks we know at New City will want to hear these. But uh, I introduced Robert uh, a little bit last night and just told you some of the, the basic about his family and uh, his work at Tate's Creek and his um, new work at, uh, at Christ for Kentucky. Uh, but, you know, uh, the thing about Robert is he's been uh, just a thought leader in our uh, denomination and really within our presbytery uh, for quite some time. And it's been fun to see uh, just the ways the Lord has been using him in Kentucky, but also just in general to influence some of the rest of us in our denomination. And if you uh, would like to engage with some more of the material and the things that he does, he probably wouldn't promote this up here, but I'll promote it uh, for you, is uh, his podcast is called Every Square Inch. Um, you should be able to find it wherever you get podcasts, right? Um, so if you search for that, Every Square Inch, Robert Cunningham, you'll be able to uh, find that and uh, engage in a lot of these uh, similar topics and, and in general, um, of how uh, Christ and culture uh, uh, come together and, uh, indeed, how do we engage with the culture and understand the culture in which we, we live. Uh, Robert's very involved uh, in his work now as a public theologian uh, in the state of Kentucky. You can ask him in the Q&A later what a public theologian is, a uh, very mysterious uh, title, but um, we can tell you more about that. Uh, he's a regular contributor as well to, he mentioned this a little bit last night, to the Lexington Herald Leader and Kentucky Sports Radio. Uh, his writings have been featured in Christianity Today, World Magazine, The New York Times, and uh, we're delighted to have him here with us this morning. So let's give him a round of applause again, and uh, we'll get started. Okay, uh, thank you so much. Uh, just from last night, um, Josh will tell you, any minister will tell you, it, it is very easy to discern whether you have an eager, attentive, hungry audience um, when you're up here talking, and uh, you definitely have that in your community, so I don't take that for granted. So thank you for your attention. Last night, and I recognize that this morning, it's rainy, it's the morning, all that hopefully you're coffeeed up, uh, but uh, this will be a little bit more challenging, you know, because instead of last night where we just did one session, we're going to do back-to-back sessions this morning um, on some heavy material, but I, I trust uh, your ability to persevere through that. Josh mentioned uh, my podcast, and I, I wasn't planning on promoting that, um, but if you would like to know more about our work at Christ for Kentucky, uh, you can go to our website, ChristForKentucky.org. But uh, also the podcast, it, it is, I'm glad he mentioned that because there are a lot of questions, I think, that come up from these talks. And if you scan through my, just the title of my different podcast episodes, um, a lot of the questions that come from this teaching I, I answer on my podcast. And if you are, if you remember last night, I said um, that I'm not here to argue um, with uh, this cultural moment and and give you, you know, here would be a, a thoughtful, well-researched Christian takedown of the gender and sexual revolution that is upon us, um, because I don't think that that is necessarily a productive way forward. That being said, I do recognize that a lot of Christians do want that, and that is offered um, on my podcast. I just completed a series um, called Defeater Ethics. If you're familiar with uh, Tim Keller's apologetic ministry, he talked a lot about defeater beliefs, where he basically said there are beliefs that our society holds that make 
Christianity implausible, so you have to tackle those beliefs, give good answers to those beliefs before they'll even consider Christianity. My argument is that um, our our culture has changed in such a way that defeater beliefs have been replaced by defeater ethics. Um, What makes Christianity implausible now is less about whether Christianity is true and more about whether Christianity is beautiful and good. And so you can think of abuse scandals in churches. You can think of our partisan idolatry and all those different things. And so I tackled more of those ethical objections to the Christian faith. But the only reason I'm saying that is um, I did did record several episodes where I recognized that our sexual ethic is the uh, defeater ethic of our day that is standing in the way of people considering Christianity. And so a lot of that kind of Christian critique and response is on the podcast, though I'm not offering it here. Okay, last night we began, and, and um, I, I say, I echo what Josh says, if you were not here last night, I do encourage you to go back and listen to that, uh, because I, I, it really does begin with the beauty of the original design. Uh, we started to tell a story, is what I said. I'm here to tell a love story, an erotic love story, which I think needs to be um, what Christians are proclaiming and embodying in, the, in this moment that is upon us. We began that erotic love story. Um, by arguing that it is actually at the heart of God's story from eternity past. Our triune God has forever existed in an eternal exchange of love, and that love is revealed and experienced um, in the exchange of erotic love through the one flesh union of male and female image bearers. This morning, uh, we come to the tragedy of the love story. We know from our novels and films that every good love story from the uh, cheesy Hallmark Christmas rom-coms that are soon flooding your televisions to classics like Romeo and Juliet, every one of these stories contains a tragedy that threatens love. And the reason why we tell our stories this way is because we instinctively know that this is the story that we inhabit. We began last night with the revelation of Eros via God's image in Genesis 1 and 2. Now we turn our attention to Genesis 3 and explore what I'm calling the redirection of Eros. The reason why I use the the word redirection is because that's what the fall has done to erotic desires. We have not repudiated Eros. This is impossible for image bearers to do. It remains alive within us as the most compelling aspect of the human existence. What's changed all comes down to the direction of erotic love. Genesis 2 ends with this beautiful declaration, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then immediately in Genesis 3, the enemy of God tempts God's image away from their destiny. They succumb to the temptation and take of that which is forbidden. If you're familiar with Christianity, then you know this is the beginning of what Christians refer to as the fall. And it's right to interpret the fall the way we normally do, in the broadest sense, as the uh, universal, sinful nature leading to sins of every kind. But theology of the body, John Paul's theology of the body, focuses a lot on the specific consequences that immediately manifest themselves in Genesis 3. He created them male and female, and they were naked and without shame. They take of that which is forbidden, and then verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. The consequences of the fall is manifested immediately in their nakedness. Specifically, the sacred area of their nakedness. In fact, this is now how we define nakedness, as the exposure of the body's sacred parts. If I came uh, straight from my hotel pool this morning in a swimsuit to speak this morning in my bathing suit, you would call that awkward, but not naked. If I came sans bathing suit, you would call the cops. Why? Genesis 3 explains. Then the eyes of both were opened. It's not that they were blind before. It's that they now see something that they had never seen. And they knew that they were naked. They were naked before, but now they see their nakedness differently. 
What has changed? The clue to it all is in the next phrase. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The genitals that we celebrated last last night now need protection. There is something about their newfound perspective that specifically threatens the sexual differences between male and female. They are now vulnerably exposed to something dangerous. And they instinctively know that they must be protected from the other. What is this new found threat? John Paul argues that love has now been replaced by lust. Last night I said that the first seminal passage in theology of the body were the words of Jesus, but from the beginning it was not so. The second seminal word from Jesus in theology of the body used to describe fallen sexuality is from the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery. We are accustomed to think of adultery by its conventional meaning, breaking marriage vows by sex with another. And certainly, this is a form of adultery, but Jesus is getting to the true meaning of adultery here and the reason why it applies to every single one of us in the room. Adultery literally means to alter, change, distort, corrupt, adulterate something from its original design and purpose. And according to Jesus, lust is the instrument of adulteration. Anyone who looks at another to lust after them has committed adultery. Adultery of what? What has been adulterated? Eros. Lust changes eros into something it was never intended to be. That's the look Adam and Eve see for the first time. No longer do they look upon each other's nakedness in order to love, but in order to lust. And there is a huge difference between the two. The difference, John Paul argues, all comes down to the direction of Eros. Again, Eros is still present in fallen image bearers, but Eros has now been redirected. And the redirection is away from the other and toward the self. Where once Eros was a selfless desire, it is now selfish. Where once Eros was a window, it is now a mirror. No longer a window through which we are given this glorious vision of love in the Trinity that we talked about last night. It is now a mirror giving us a vision of our love of self. And in this way, John Paul argues, lust turns Eros from an icon to an idol. The word icon that we talked about last night a lot simply means image. When scripture, when scripture say we are made in the image of God, it is saying we are icons of the divine. But what happens when the image turns inward on itself? When the image is no longer concerned with what it was created to image, but instead is concerned only with self? Well, the icon becomes an idol of self-worship. And so now Eros, created as the most powerful icon of God, becomes the most powerful idol of self. Again, erotic love was originally designed after the eternal exchange of love within the Trinity. That exchange is a selfless exchange, not a selfish exchange. Each person of the Trinity forever gives love, but because each is giving love, each is likewise receiving love. Well, there's a huge difference between receiving and taking. In the former, you receive that which you have already given. In the latter, you are taking that which you are unwilling to give. And this is the essence of lust. Lust never gives. It only takes. So at the core of fallen human sexuality is love's exchange is replaced by lust's exploitation. And when that happens... Rules no longer apply, except the rule of self. When Eros 
was defined by the Trinity's giving and receiving of love, then erotic love had to follow the will of God to be accomplished. But erotic lust redirects eros towards the self, and therefore erotic lust must follow my will in order to be accomplished. Simply put, God sets the rules of love. I set the rules of lust. Therefore, there are no longer any rules except the rule that my lust must be satisfied. And those lustful desires don't have to just be about sexual pleasure. Often it is not. After the fall, God said lust is going to create a power struggle between the genders. He says to Eve, your desire will be for him. That's not a good desire. That's a lustful desire. But he will rule over you. That's not a good rule. That's a lustful rule. And there are certainly exceptions to this. Please hear me say that. There are definitely exceptions to this. But historically speaking, that's how lust tends to play out between the genders. Again, exceptions. But by and large, men tend to use power to gain sex. Women tend to use sex to gain power. Men tend to manipulate to gain sex. Women tend to use sex to manipulate. Men tend to give attention to gain sex. Women tend to give sex to gain attention. And the point I'm trying to make is both are approaching sex with lustful intentions. Though the taking might look differently, both are seeking to take rather than give. And once love's giving has been replaced by lust's taking as the central human impulse, suddenly Pandora's box has been opened and the power of Eros, designed to be creation's greatest glory, is unleashed upon creation as the source of its greatest ruin. Nothing in all of creation is more powerful than erotic love. That was true before the fall, and it remains true after the fall. The fall has innumerable devastating effects, but the reason why this aspect of the human existence is singled out in the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 is because it is the most powerful part of the human existence, and the reason why it is singled out in the fall narrative of Genesis 3 is because it is the most powerful part of fallen existence. Throughout all of history, nothing has proven more destructive than sinners compelled by lust's exploitation. That's true of history, but it's especially true in our time. Historians hate the word unprecedented. Josh mentioned I'm, I'm, I'm doing a PhD, um, and it's in history. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm, I'm doing research in the area of history in America's founding era. And so I, I've gotten to know the, this world of historians, and they hate the word unprecedented. How many times during COVID did you hear people use the word unprecedented? Pandemics are not unprecedented. Pandemics are actually normal uh, to human history. And this is certainly true when it comes to the history of lust. Every form of fallen sexuality we see today has been around since the fall. That being said, what I want to do with the remainder of our time is explore the two ways I wish to argue we are living in unprecedented times of fallen eros. The reason why I qualified that is I don't, as a historian myself, do not use the word unprecedented lightly, but I do think if we're going to be uh, true to the exploration of redirected eros and fallen eros, we have got to deal with the moment that is upon us, and there are two ways that I see it playing out. Here are the two unprecedented ways we, ways we are experiencing fallen sexual desires, fallen eros in our culture that we need to appreciate. Technology and identity. What has technology and identity done to fallen eros? Technology has magnetized, mag, magnified its devastation and identity has solidified its devastation. Let me explain what I mean by that. Let's start with technology. We tend to um, think of technological advancements as always a good thing, and in some ways this is true, but in other ways it couldn't be further from the truth. 
You see, technology itself is not good or bad. Instead, it is what um, ethics philosophers call its, 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 its value is determined instrumentally, meaning is it used for good or is it used for ill? You determine how the instrument is, whether it's virtuous or not. Well, um, this is the thesis of French philosopher Jacques Ellul, such a fun name to say, Jacques Ellul, the, the go-to critic on uh, technological advancement. He's not a critic of technological advancement. If you get into a little scholarship, he is doom and gloom and thinks we're all about to destroy ourselves. But his critique of technology is that technology has one and only one goal, which is efficiency. Well, efficiency is a dangerous thing in the hand of fallen sinners. What happens through technology, is that the fallen condition has become far more efficient in its destruction, right? For example, when, when all we had was swords and spears, there was only so much destruction that fallen hatred and violence could accomplish. But now, with the te- technological advancements of weaponry, what we are seeing take pl- place right now in Israel and Palestine, we are, we are seeing how efficient humanity has become at, as dis- at destroying itself via technology. You get the point. Okay. Let's consider fallen eros in our technological age. There's nothing new about lust's exploitation. But what technology has done is magnify exploitation in unprecedented ways. Here we come to the role, of course, of the Internet in the redirection of Eros. The Internet has made lust so efficient that nearly every historical boundary has been eliminated. And before I explore this, let me say that I know this one will be very personal for many of you here. Pornography addiction runs on shame. We have to have this discussion, but my concern is that in so doing, your shame will only deepen and send you right back into porn's shameful cycle. So let me preface what I'm about to say with a dignifying word to you if that is your struggle. Hear me say this uh, very clearly, brothers and sisters, and sisters. Yes, uh, sister, you are not alone in your pornography usage. Women are the fastest growing uh, demographic of online porn, and yet every single one of them thinks they're the only one on the planet doing it. A lie that only compounds the shame. So hear me, brothers and sisters. Porn is sick. It is sickening, but you are not sickening. Porn is debasing, but you are not debased. Porn is animalistic, but you are not an animal. In fact, porn happens to be ensnaring you by preying upon something incredibly beautiful and noble within you, your sexuality. Behind the most twisted expressions of fallen eros is the glorious vision of eros I laid out for us last night. Pornographers are tricking you by preying upon something beautiful in you, then leaving you feeling gross and worthless so that you will return once again to their deception. And one day pornographers will pay when they have to stand before Almighty God and give an account for what they have done to us. We're, 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 we're coming after them in Kentucky, by the way. Um, if, if, if there's anybody here who are connected to Ohio legislators, I'd love to meet with you and share what we're doing in Kentucky because we're, we're taking it to them. But whether we're, we're able to get to the pornographers here or not, pornographers will pay. As for you, what you have done is wrong, but you are not beyond God's forgiveness, cleansing, healing, and redemption. Hold that in mind as I discuss this. What is pornography? When discussing the difference between pornography and art, Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart famously said, I know it when I see it. And indeed, this is true. You can just instinctively tell the difference. But what is it that you are intuiting in that difference? The difference all comes down to the intent of the creator. The artist and the pornographer are both displaying the human body but with opposite intentions. Our family got to visit Italy this past summer, and we toured all of these art museums, and my 
sons, ages at the time 6, 10, 11, and 14, saw a lifetime worth of nudity. But I had no problem with it. But if those museums were filled with pornified nudity, it would have led to a lifetime of trauma in their lives. The artist showcases the human body as a glory to behold. The pornographer exploits the human body as a, the human body as a commodity to consume. Art echoes Eden. Porn echoes the fall. And this is why people masturbate to pornography and not art. I said that the fall redirects Eros away from the icon of selfless love and inward towards the idol of selfish lust. Well, masturbation is quite literally sex with your idol. I understand the temptation. I really do. I understand the temptation to normalize masturbation because it is so common and shame-producing. And so our well-intended solution is to say it's just a natural part of life. Well, that depends upon our definition of natural. Yes, it is natural to fall in eros and its lustful conquest. But if we define natural by what I said last night, then masturbation becomes the antithesis of erotic love. Parents, there is another way to talk masturbation with your kids besides it's just natural and everyone does it narrative of the world or it's dirty and shameful narrative of purity culture. Teach your children the glory of their genitals as the holy instruments of erotic love created not for selfish indulgence but as a gift to selflessly give to their spouse in a one flesh union that tells the story of an eternal exchange of the triune love. I mean, don't say it like that. They won't have a clue what you're talking about. But find a way to say it. Okay, you can breathe. We're, we're, we're done talking masturbation. Back to pornography. <laughs> Nothing about pornography that is new. It's been around since we've been able to create it. So I'm not calling pornography unprecedented. What's unprecedented is the technological proliferation of pornography. The technology of the internet has made lust so efficient that nearly every historical has been overcome. Communal boundaries have been overcome. You alone with your screen in a locked room. Embarrassment boundaries have been overcome. Private browsing and complete anonymity. Content boundaries have been overcome. It is an inexhaustible supply. Accessibility boundaries have been overcome. It is available to in your pocket as we speak. Preference boundaries have been overcome. There is no fantasy you seek that you cannot find. In some ways, even physical boundaries are being overcome with the quickly evolving technology of AI and virtual reality. But if you still want the physical, which less and less do, as Jacques Ellul predicted, but if you still do want the real thing, technology has an answer for that too. You can download an app right now and today locate someone in this area willing to meet up for mutual lustful exploitation. The fall redirected Eros from selfless love to selfish lust, and the technology of our world has removed all limitations of that fallen redirection. There is no limit to exploitation anymore. Now, what are the consequences? Too many to speak of here. I could, uh, I could do an entire conference just on this topic. But for the purposes of our time this morning, discussing the glorious theology of the body, theology of the body and all the glory and beauty that we celebrated last night, the ubiquity of pornography has led to a nearly universal pornographic view of the body, where God's glorious plan for the body I spoke of last night has nearly been erased. Again, the differences between art and pornography comes down to the intent of the creator. Well, God is an artist, brothers and sisters. He is not a pornographer. But it is nearly impossible for us to view his divine artistry as anything but porn. The body has become a commodity for lust. We don't even know how to look at each other without exploitation in mind. Again, that's always been true. But never has it been truer than for us in our porn-saturated society. What a crafty scheme of our adversary 
who wants nobody to know God's love, to vandalize via technological advances the central revelation of God's love, using technological progress to give God's image a pornographic definition, turning God into an exploitive pornographer rather than a loving artist. And if you are participating in that technological exploitation, then I can tell you, I can say this definitively, the number one reason, perhaps the only reason, God has you here this weekend. You are here for me as a minister of God on his behalf to tell you it is past time for you to get help and stop. In the name of undefiled erotic love, renounce the exploitation of God's image. But I can assure you, as one who has been walking in porn sobriety for over 20 years now, you cannot do that alone. You must come to your church. You are very blessed. There's not many people that have this. You are very blessed by a church that will love you, not shame you. You have to come to your church. You have to finally tell the truth, and you have to let them help you find sobriety. I cannot tell you how freeing a porn-free life is. All right. Now let's turn to the next unprecedented development of our time, identity. So technology has magnified lust's exploitation in unprecedented ways. Identity has solidified lust in unprecedented ways. Now, let me, um, let me, let me uh, give, I don't know if this is a warning. I don't know when I uh, preface this. This is the one part of, uh, when I gave these talks originally, my wife said, hey, when you got into the identity stuff, you lost me. Um, and I just said, it's okay. So uh, I'm just saying in this next five to ten minutes, will, will you do your best to put your thinking caps on and follow me here? And if you glaze over and, man, you lost me, there's, this is the one part where I'm just going to nerd out a little bit, okay? And I'm just asking you to try your best. And if you don't, it's okay. It's fine. I'll, I'll, when I get to the point where I'm like, all right, I'm done talking like that, come back to me, I'll, I'll tell you, okay? But do your best during this to follow, because this is so important. This is so, so, so important to equip you to understand our moment. Carl Truman has written a massively important book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's not an easy read, but I am going to do you a favor and in five minutes give you cliff notes highlights of his scholarship because it is so important to understand. Truman set out to research a simple question around a simple statement. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Truman wanted to understand how that statement could go from incoherent and self-evidently false to coherent and self-evidently true in the span of one generation. So much so that to now deny that statement is beyond the pale, socially speaking. What Truman's research demonstrates is that you can't make sense of any of this if you focus on sexuality and gender. You have to understand something every single one of us shares, no matter our sexuality and gender, the preeminence of self. That is to say, when considering a gay identity or a gender identity, we're too focused on the word gay and gender, and we're not focused enough on the word identity. It's the identity, the notion of identity that is the real issue that is playing out here. And let me help us as best I can, help you be equipped to understand this moment, okay? What had to happen for I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body to make sense is that the word feel in that sentence had to usurp the word body in that sentence. So 20 years ago, If you go to a doctor and say, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would recognize that as an issue. But the issue would have been with your feelings, not your body. Therefore, the answer is to work on the feelings to make them align with your body. Now, if you say that to a doctor, it's still an issue, but the issue is now with your body. Thus, the solution is to align the body to match the feelings. And what this tells us is that the metaphysical feelings now have greater authority than our physical realities. 
I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body has become an obsolete statement. Now it's, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. I feel has been replaced by I am. Because what I feel is now who I am. And all of us, every single one of you in this room, all of us, not just our LGBTQ friends and neighbors, all of us now view ourselves this way. Let me show you how we got there. Truman argues it begins uh, way before the sexual revolution with a much more significant revolution of self-identity. And the first key development that had to take place was what's called the internalizing of the self. Historically, the answer to who are you, historically, that was answered externally. I am the son of my father. I am a member of my tribe. I am a farmer or whatever my trade may be. And of course, the most common answer, historically speaking, is I am what my religion, what my God says I am. In Christianity, I am an image bearer of God. We define ourselves by external identity markers. But in the 18th century, the answer, who are you, moved away from the external and turned toward the internal. Truman specifically focuses on the philosophy of Rousseau, who Truman argues successfully did move our identity inward. Rousseau has this famous line that says, man is born free, but is everywhere in chains. The idea behind that statement is your truest self is free, autonomous, self-determining individual, but that individualism has been chained by external realities. He reframes these external things that used to uh, define us um, as our identity as now a threat to our identity. So now family Societal norms and certainly your religion are dangerous because they are external authorities seeking to define you and standing in the way of your quest to define yourself internally. Therefore, with Rousseau, our identity is no longer a dialogue with external reality, certainly not your God, but an internal monologue with the self. Well, after Rousseau comes romanticism. Whereas the Enlightenment was the age of reason, Romanticism was the age of emotions. This was an important correction to the Enlightenment as art and poetry and music, these things that speak to our emotions more than our cognition, saw a resurgence. And it's a good thing. But the problem, however, is when Romanticism's emphasis on feelings is disconnected from the Enlightenment's emphasis on reason. Our emotion and our cognition should never be severed, but romanticism gone to an extreme did just that. So here's, here's where we are. Take Rousseau's philosophy of autonomous individualism, where my identity is no longer defined externally but internally, and then add to it the preeminence of romanticism, emotions. And what we now have is not just an etern- internal identity, we have an internal emotional identity. We define ourselves not by an internal monologue with our brain, but with our feelings. At this point, I believe philosopher Charles Taylor's ethics of authenticity is even more helpful than Truman. The notion of authenticity has become paramount, has it not? When someone comes out of the proverbial closet, they say things like, I was living a lie, meaning I wasn't being true, authentic to myself, authentic with who I am. Again, there, there, you, you see this all over our culture. Authenticity, authenticity, authenticity. And Taylor argues this is how we all view our identity, whether we know it or not. I'll give you an example. It's just so you can see that this isn't an LGBT thing. This is all of us, okay? When we talk about work, when we talk about our vocations, we don't ask whether it is an important contribution to society that allows me to provide for myself and dependents. Now we ask, what? Am I fulfilled in my calling? Likewise, we don't define marriage by external vows for better or worse till death do us part. We ask, and I'm not saying we, hopefully this is not you, but this is certainly prevalent in our world. Now what is the question? Am I fulfilled in my marriage? Christians even tend to live their faith according to this ethic of authenticity rather than the external work 
of Christ's cross and resurrection, the external authority of the Bible, historic creeds, and sacramental practices, we search inward for an an internal, emotional, authentic assurance of what these externals already declare to be true. We don't ask, does the Bible tell me I'm forgiven? We ask, do I feel forgiven? Because I can't be forgiven unless I can just feel it, right? Now, the only reason I pause to note this is to demonstrate that all of us, not just our, our LGBTQ plus friends, tend to define our identity by internal feelings, even if those feelings are not sexualized. However, it is true that sexual identity has indeed risen to prominence. Rousseau, internal identity. Romanticism, internal emotional identity. Well, what is the most powerful emotion we experience? What is the most powerful feeling within the human experience? What we talked about last night, erotic feelings. This was the observation of Sigmund Freud. According to Freud's research, everything comes back to erotic desire. We are defined not just by desires, as the romantics suggest, but Freud built upon romanticism by saying not just desires, but by sexual desires specifically. Freud argued that because the strongest and most satisfying happiness we experience is sexual, Freud says we must, quote, direct quote, seek the satisfaction of happiness in this life along the path of sexual relations, and that we must make genital eroticism the central point of our lives. There you have it. Is that not an apt description of the way our culture approaches sex? We seek satisfaction of happiness in life along the path of sexual relations, and we make genital eroticism the central point of our lives. Though many of his theories have been rejected, we remain a Freudian society. But for his ideology to go mainstream, historical norms had to be cast off. And just after Freud comes a lesser-known um, lesser scholar, Alfred Kinsey. Kinsey's character and research are very controversial if you go down that rabbit hole. But his mark on the field of human sexuality is indelible. indelible. If you want to know where all the gender studies, queer studies, sexual studies are taking place in the university campuses, it all comes back to Kinsey and the Kinsey reports that gave academic legitimacy to sexual desires and practices that historically were considered immoral. His, what, his di- what his research did was it broke the dam of long-standing social constructs, essentially normalizing any and all expressions of sexuality, which is why he is commonly referred to as the father of the sexual revolution. Freud convinced us that sexual happiness is ultimate happiness. Kinsey broke the bounds of that sexual happiness to include all expressions, and then comes the subsequent sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, and how was that revolution spoken of? Liberation. But what has been liberated? Not just your sexual experiences and enjoyment, but quite literally, you. You are now free to be you, because who are you? You now are your sexual identity. And so now we have the internal, emotional, sexual identity of the 21st century. All right, there's the scholarship. If you took a nap, come back. In light of all of this, do you now see, and I did all of that history and and, and scholarship to just make this one point that is so crucial for you to understand in this moment. Do you now see why our friends who identify as LGBTQ+, view this part of them as so important. And the reason is they don't view it as merely a part of them. It is them. It is their core identity, culturally, philosophically speaking. Therefore, on this singular issue, tolerance, respect, kindness, and love are not enough. Nothing short of affirmation will do. The tension that we all face in this unprecedented age of sexual identity is the issue of affirmation. We must be affirming of any and all sexual and gender expressions and lifestyles. Why? Because my sexuality is now me. 
and therefore to not affirm my sexuality is not to affirm me as a person. You are not disapproving of my opinion or even my actions. You are disapproving of my very existence. And so when you consider the reality of technology that magnifies lust's exploitation and the reality of identity that has solidified in in, in permanent ways lust's exploitation, we are right to say that we do in fact inhabit an unprecedented age of redirected eros. But please hear me, we are not without hope. You're not going to win arguments. I hope that scholarship showed you why you can't win arguments. You can't debate your way out of this moment. Technology and identity hold way too much power, culturally speaking, to fight with arguments and internet memes. Your tweet is doing nothing. There is one and only one way to engage this cultural moment. You must be heralds of a better erotic story. Not just herald it, embody it, live it. We must show the world a better erotic story. A story that transcends this moment and every moment by stretching forth into eternity past and will be the story of eternity that is to come. And in our next session, that story gets better than we could have ever imagined. We are going to see that though we have made a mess of this erotic story, God uses Eros to save the story, even entering our fallen love story as the hero to rescue and marry his bride. Let me pray for us. Lord, always weighty and heavy when we deal with this, not just the world that we live, the world that um, our children and grandchildren uh, will be raised in, but weighty personally. There's no way to talk about fallen human sexuality without all of the stories of things we have done or things that have been done to us that are just devastating because of the power of erotic love. And so I pray that you would surround um, this more weighty talk with the extra measure of grace and mercy and gentleness and kindness. We just sang it. What a perfect song to continually sing uh, this weekend. This Savior who says to the sexually broken, sexually traumatized, living with sexual regrets and shame, a Savior who still says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and find rest for your souls. Give us your rest, O Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. All right. What do you want to do? You want to do questions now or just hold all questions to the end of the next one and take a break? What, what are we doing? Okay. Great. Questions? Yes. Yes, yes, in two ways. Uh, um, so sh- I, I, they, they were telling me, they were telling, my, my kids gave me some feedback, said, hey, we can't hear the questions, repeat them. So uh, she was asking, even though ethically, principally, the church condemns pornography also, has the church participated or proliferated the pornified society that we live in? Is that the essence of it? Yeah, so yes. Um, First and foremost, because statistically speaking, uh, Christians are uh, the greatest consumers of pornography. Uh, the Bible Belt is, is, is the biggest stronghold of pornography. And there are reasons, obviously, uh, for that, because it, it, it remains taboo in the Christian church, and so we go into hiding and turn to pornography. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, pornography addiction run, is, is, is ravishing our churches if... if, 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 if uh, if churches just said, you know what, um, we're not going to, we're not going to deal with the cultural, sexual, and gender chaos until we get the chaos of pornography usage in our church under control, 
uh, then we'll never get to the world. We've got a lot of work to do. Um, so yes, in participation too, but I would even say, and this may be what you're saying, is even in, our, um, even in uh, the way we come about it, um, and, and ironically, um, ironically, well, I can come at it several ways, and I can talk about this for a long time, um, but, but one way that people don't appreciate is what we talked about last night. You may have even asked the question last night where we talked about what has purity culture and religious fundamentalism done to this discussion, and what, what purity culture and fundamentalism, and I'm not talking like Islamic fundamentalism, I'm talking about Christian fundamentalism, what it does is it comes at the innate um, beauty of the female body um, in a different way, which essentially says we can't handle this, so we have to cover it up, and you women have got to, you gotta be, you, you've got to do the purity thing because, you know, uh, men are like these helpless, lustful Neanderthals that can't handle the side of your body, and so you're going to have to, like, fix that because we can't control ourselves. That narrative within conservative evangelicalism, ironically, is still a pornified view of the female body. It's still saying that the body, the, the female body, is this lustful uh, thing for exploitation that we cannot handle, so we have to put up all of these rules to, to help us. That's still viewing women as pornography. And so it's kind of a backdoor way at reinforcing this narrative that you're not art, you're pornography. Good question. Yeah. Of course, yeah. It, meaning, is, is there a theology of Christian identity? Um, so we talked about what, what, what happened when society stopped, the problem of what happened when society stopped uh, defining them externally by their vocation, their family, their tribe, or whatever, um, and moved internally. We see that. Is there a problem with kind of past more traditional expressions and more traditional cultures that still views themselves as I am a member of this tribe. Well, yeah, that, that becomes problematic in other ways. Um, and, and we're seeing that, you know, uh, in the partisan divide, frankly, right now in America. It is, is I define myself by my political views. That becomes po- problematic and whatnot. So whether externally in a fallen world or internally as fallen sinners, the way we fundamentally view ourselves and define ourselves, if we're, if we're finding that definition within the realities of our fallen world, we're going to get into problems in, in, in every way. My suggestion is to go back and say, instead, I'm a creature with a creator, so I'm going to go with what the creator defined me as. <laughs> let's just go ahead and ask the one who created us, how, let, let's let him define us, and and there we are, Imago Dei, though fallen and broken, yet fully redeemed with the blood-bought identity in Jesus Christ. Who am I? That's who I am. So looking transcendently for our identity rather than horizontally, whether that be in the world around us or within. Good question. Yes. Okay. Can somebody help me there? Yeah, good question, man. Good question. How does art echo Eden? So uh, there's a line in there I said, art art echoes Eden, pornography echoes the fall. So the beauty of art, the beauty of music, the beauty of uh, the humanities, you know, that that world of education is um, they remain what philosopher Taylor calls, I think, the most significant ones we have left. Philosopher Charles Taylor talks about his, his... kind of magnum opus is a secular age, and he talks about that we, have, we, are, we live in a secular age, and he defines a secular age as basically we've cut ourselves off 
from all transcendence. And we've created kind of an imminent bubble where we are trying to live, answer all of, all of life's questions, purpose, meaning, morality, all these things that human beings tend to do. We used to look transcendently for that. Now we are looking imminently for that within ourselves. So we've cut ourselves off from transcendence. And we're trying to create life and existence without a transcendent creature. That's that creator. creator. That's what a transcendent age is. But Charles, Charles Taylor um, ends, hopefully, with, he says, and yet there remain cracks in the secular. There are these little cracks in our secular society where transcendence still breaks through. And art is probably the most significant crack in the secular left. You can't, like, I don't care, I don't care what, it doesn't matter. When you are around art, there is something transcendent that happens. When you are around incredible music, there is something transcendent that happens. When you're enraptured in good storytelling, there's something that transcendent that happens. And what is the transcendent in good art? What is the transcendence that's taking place there? You're getting haunted by Eden, to get to your question. What's happening here with good art is it's echoing Eden in the sense of it's this seeds of transcendence reminding you that this is actually the truer story. This is actually what you were made for. You weren't made for the world as we know it. We are made for what art is doing, which is giving us this beautiful picture of the world as we ought to know it. And so it's echoing back the way things ought to be. Great question. Yes. Yes. I think I heard you. Are you saying, what do you, pre-puberty, what's, what's all this look? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, you have lovely pastors here at this church that would love to walk you through. I think giving language, one, one thing that I have done um, with my oldest son when we went away, uh, one of the things we did is we took this really um, intentionally took him on a very long, strenuous, difficult, at times a little bit dangerous hike. And then we came back from that and built a fire. And I said, listen, what we just did is a metaphor of what is before you. Um, before, I mean, it's just tough. This, this, one of the consequences of a, of a society with prolonged adolescence, um, I mean, we talk about all the consequences out there of like, you know, they're not learning responsibility, they're not learning to work and earn their keep, and you know, da da da. We could go on and on and on with some of those critiques. The one that's underappreciated is, is we are asking people with erotic love raging inside of them to walk in fidelity for way longer than human beings have ever done. And that's a real deal. And it's true. It really is true. Um, you know, my, uh, and, and, and histor- still in historical cultures and, and, and even in our society in the past, my, my, uh, my 15-year-old is, he's in the ages where he's starting to prepare for vocation and marriage. And now it's like, you've got a decade maybe <laughs> at, at least. So giving language to that, I, like, like I said, I took him on a long hike, and I said, listen, in the unique moment where you find yourself in the unique world, you have a cross to bear that is, is so heavy and so difficult, and, and you've got a journey in front of you. I'm with you every step of the way. No shame, no embarrassment, open communication. I want to talk about your successes and failures along that way, but recognizing and giving language to uh, the difficulty of delaying uh, the erotic, um, as we, we do now, or you can get, let them get married, I suppose, if you're up for that, but anyway, but there's a lot more answers, but that's the first thing that comes to mind, but I, I joked, but I really, I really do think um, teenage parents, don't, don't you dare parent teenagers without your church. 
I mean, just, just that, that's why they're here. And you got to get church. Yeah. Has that been 10 minutes or? Yes. Say it one more time. Asexual? Oh, 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 okay. Mean what do I do with the just the physical reality of intersection? Not intersectionality. Another conference of intersex uh, bodies. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, if you're familiar with um, literature on the other side, that that is a constant. Um, that's a constant thing they bring up is gender, sexuality is not a binary, and here's the proof of it. And 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 as you know, um, philosophers always say exceptions actually prove the rule. Uh, the reason why we see this as a unique exception, which we as Christians would view as a consequence of the fall, uh, the fall, um, the fall impacts our genetics in in many different ways, um, including um, our pre- predisposition sexually, our predispositions towards every sins, um, nurture nature coming together to create who we are. But yeah, the intersect intersex reality doesn't disprove the beauty of, of male, female, gender binary we see in Scripture, in some ways it reinforces it because the reason why we treat it as an anomaly shows us that we intuitively know that actually, yeah, um, the normal design uh, within God's creation is male and female. So the, the exception proves the rule, not the other way around. I mean, be, be more gentle, gentle with somebody who has that and helping them with that, but yeah. Break? Yeah, ten, minute break. 10 minute break. 10 minute break. We'll come back. Y'all have been very attentive. Thank you. That, that talk was a lot harder than this one, if that encourages you. <laughs>